0: Hello and welcome to 50 Minutes in Hell. It's a 50-minute podcast. My name's Ed Zitron. Today, I am joined by Seamus Blackley. He invented the Xbox. How you doing, Seamus? I'm, I'm all right. You much of a gamer these days? Do you game?
1: Well, yeah. You're never not a gamer, right? Yeah. But uh, you can transition from uh, somebody whose entire life revolves around games to somebody who just secretly has it as the most important part of their lives. And that's where I'm at. So what are you playing? Um, well, you know, I just got um, the Playdate console um, that Ooh. I, got to start, and it showed up, and I am unexpectedly completely addicted to it, because it's basically like I mean, like a lot of young consoles used to be. Well, describe it for the audience, just, oh, well, just... Okay. So um, it's made by this company uh, well it was designed by this company called Teenage Engineering, who are famous for making incredibly cool little uh, consumer gadgets. Um, typically around like music production, they have a really cool little keyboard and samplers and beatboxes. So they, uh, I think in conjunction with somebody else designed this small console. It's got a black and white screen with incredibly high definition. It's about the size of like a a Nintendo, uh, the Game Boy Advance, um, but thinner. And it's got this really cool crank controller that folds into the side, kind of like, um, the generator handle on one of those crank, uh, you know, survivalist flashlights. But in right. this case, it's kind of, kind of like an abstraction of, like, the, the fishing controller crank. Um, and all of these game designs use it for really interesting stuff. There's, like, storytelling and all sorts of, you know, interactive fiction and clever game mechanics and mashups of different game mechanics. And they have kind of a subscription season model where there are new games coming in all the time. And some of them are terrible but have something really cool about them. And some of them are just ridiculously good. And right. I just I can't put it down. I really can't because I'm so fascinated. The thing that's always fascinating me about games is is mechanics and how mechanics are expressed through code and the sort of collision between art and technology that games uniquely represent for me. And this is it's great and so i'm not even playing any big console releases you know like everybody's saying oh you you know spider-man 2 you have to play and it's really great and i'm sure that it, it is could, very good but i'm i'm really obsessed with play it right now but spider-man 2 is probably going to be the next thing so everyone knows kind of your
0: story but how did you end up actually designing the xbox because i refuse to just rely on wikipedia here well, so what my, was your journey?
1: My Wikipedia is a, is a masterpiece of, of crowdsourced dog diarrhea. But yeah, um, all right. <laughs> well, the, like every good idea, it was the result of incredible panic. Um, and in this case, I had, as a young you know, 27 or 28-year-old guy, absolutely got myself into a horrible situation of not being able to deliver on my promises with a game called Trespasser. Right. And I had Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg, you know, um, from... Dream- of Quibi fame. Yeah, yeah. So we called him Sparky. So I had Sparky screaming at me, the veins popping out the side of his head. And, and, and I had this game that was based on, on physics and doing storytelling with physics. And that's a really well-established thing now. Um, you know, Gabe Newell went and did it right with Half-Life 2 and, um, and, but at the time, you know, I was young and the studio didn't know what the hell they were doing with games. They just wanted to be in games because it was hot and I was kind of forced, but also not politically savvy or experienced enough to like fight shipping the game before it was done. And so I, it was terrible disaster. It was also right at the dawn of internet fandom. And so, I got both barrels, man. And and there was another thing also which is a little more subtle, which is right at the beginning of 3D acceleration and it was a big game that rendered the outdoors in a special way that was incompatible with 3D accelerators. So when you tried to 3D accelerate with it it actually got slower. So all these things inspired to cause me to believe that I either needed to, you know, leave my car in the garage and die from carbon monoxide poisoning or like, escape to a different industry. It was it was really a bad time. And I had met Bill Gates because he was an investor in DreamWorks. Uh, and he had come by for a demo of the technology, and the technology was really cool at the time, totally unprecedented. It had dinosaurs walking around and all this physics-based world stuff and water. Pretty commonplace now, but in you know, in like 1996, it was Madman Moonrock stuff, right? Right. And so he was like, oh, you should come to Microsoft. And so I thought, okay, fine. So I literally sent him an email saying, I need a job. And you said that I could come to Microsoft. So I got an interview and got a job as program manager of, you know, graphics for Windows or something. And it was a miserable job. I showed up and I was in this little middle office with no window. And and it wasn't gaming related. It was horrible. It was horrible. I mean, it, was, it did relate to games because uh, games have always driven graphics. But, it, but I also had to fit into everything else boring and, you know, the sort of beige-colored Microsoft of your kind of mm. shit. Yeah. And so uh, w- at one point, um, uh, I saw an advert. Uh, I'm translating for, for you to advert from advertisement for um, PlayStation 2, which Sony was pre-hyping at the time. And they were bragging that it was so powerful it could run Excel and you wouldn't need a PC anymore. Right. And I was also looking at the roadmap for graphics on Windows, which was getting very advanced. And, you know, I had got over the problem with the 3D accelerators, which was difficult emotional bullshit for me. Um, and so I was looking at this roadmap from companies like 3DFX and this company called NVIDIA or something like this and, and 3d effects though baby the voodoo series oh yeah and ati yeah so oh, baby guys at ati up in toronto you go see them ky the ceo really interesting weird guy and um and i knew that we were going to smoke anything that playstation was going to do with this supposed cell engine which is actually very naive but very fast but naive i thought cell was arc-
0: ps3 for some reason
1: no no ps2, PS2? um and it was going to be in everything it was going to be in tvs and it was really a cool idea but the the graphics architecture that had been adopted by these companies was very m- mature. It was based on the work of people in academia who had been doing rendering for a long time um, and rendering engines and experience and what it meant to draw scenes that looked good and all of this stuff and how you'd actually make something fast. And the cell engine was more of a total brute force, max power approach, if you're right. thinking, That's right. And so I thought, you know, we could destroy these guys. And they shouldn't fuck around with, you know, with telling us that, you know, they'll run Excel because everybody develops their game on PC and then ports it over to, to PlayStation anyway. Right. And the only reason we don't have these flashy graphics is because PC is like a Turkish market. It's like there are a hundred trillion different varieties. You can never optimize for one. If we were to make a platform that just optimized for graphics and sound, which at that time was called the DirectX package, Uh, we specified like a hardware standard or actually made this box, then we could wipe the floor with Sony because not only would all the tools be there and developers like to use it, um, but it would be like enabling for artists and we'd have a much higher technology and better look. And I started to get really obsessed with this idea and angry about the fact that the future was going to be sort of taken by these guys doing this naive approach. And I realized also that this ad might really anger Microsoft. And so I thought, hell, you know, like Microsoft could wipe the floor with these guys. Let's go. And sort of stopped doing my day job and started promoting this thing. And, you know, a lot of the time it was just me. Some of the time I had friends who, you know, helped out, but they all had careers at Microsoft and I was brand new, so I had nothing to lose. And so through various (laughs) combinations of people, uh, you know, we got it done. But it was a crazy and turbulent time, and there you go. That's way more than you ever wanted to know, right there. No, I. It, here's the thing, I. Knew you you invented the Xbox, but I didn't really know
0: the story, and it sounds like you somehow did so from not like a you weren't like a director level
1: either. No, I did. It was totally from below. Just a guy. I mean that. No offense there. And I had come from a background of of, of abject failure, you know. So I was really successful at games before that, and I had been really successful as a physicist young physicist i was like you know they called me swine because i left exams early and stuff and like you know new stuff but um uh you know i was i under- trying to understand what the hell failure meant it was really bad well and- talking well
0: here's is a slight diversion with the time yeah. we have on a completely different level what recently on twitter you grew cacao nibs i'm probably saying that wrong and then made your own chocolate yeah how the hell did you get there? Did you just... You, you managed to go from growing the nibs to making the chocolate. First of all, how? But also, where did you find out the means did it? Like, did you read a book? Did you just go online to make chocolate? Well, you notice things. Chocolate?
1: You know, you, you read things and see things during the day. And and it's really interesting. It's like, all right, well, you know, um, I I saw an article somewhere that showed these the cacao pods that had the seeds you made chocolate out of grew off of the trunk of the tree, not from the branches like other fruit that we know, at least certainly right. up in North America and Northern Hemisphere is shit. And I was like really fascinated by this. So I thought, all right, well, I'll try to, I should try to grow one of these. And I, I kind of have, I really enjoy growing weird plants. Like we have a cinnamon tree and mahogany and I've had macadamia trees. And I've grown coffee. And, and,
0: and where stuff. do you live right now?
1: In Pasadena.
0: Pasadena. So um, you have the space to grow.
1: Well, yeah, but these can't grow outside. So the cacao trees are a tropical plant. They really want to be at the equator. So they need like constant temperature and 12 hours of strong sunlight. Actually, muted sunlight because they, they like to be a canopy plant. So I thought, all right, well, I'll, you know, I, should, I just want to see this. I want to figure it out. And so we planted a few and they they grew and we figured out about, you know, the soil acidity they needed and all the nerdy stuff, the botanical stuff you need to know. We set up lighting and automatic watering kind of got things right. And they exploded. They grew a lot and they started to flower, but no fruit would ever come. And so, okay, well, we, we went and this is now happening in my lab. um, And we were, and one of the guys in my lab used to be a microbiologist. And so we're looking at biology papers about the, you know, fertilization and pollination of cacao or theobroma cacao and all these research papers and we realized that there's a small biting gnat that's not present in California, obviously that, that actually does the fertilization, or the, does the the pollination of these plants. So we then take it upon ourselves with microscopes and tweezers to pollinate ourselves. Oh my so god! We start pollinating these plants, and we discovered that you have to have plants that have varied enough DNA for them actually to pollinate and for it to hold. So we had to get other trees and wait for them to start flowering, and that finally happened. And then we pollinated, and it worked. And then pods started to grow. And then we thought, oh, my God. So, all right, well, we're going to have these pods. What the hell do you do then? So we went to look at other papers, and we learned that um, cacao is fermented um, and then dried and then roasted and then shelled. And then that's when you get these nibs. And then you basically wet mill these nibs into chocolate, and then you add sugar and other dry ingredients like milk powder to make milk chocolate. And there are a million things that people do. And all these guys, all the blowhards and pretentious guys on the internet talk about making chocolate, but they're really just talking about like the last 5%. And everything else they get comes from like Costa Rica or South America, where somebody who actually knows what the hell they were doing (laughs) did the hard part. So we were like, okay, we got to figure out how to do the hard part. And so I bought nibs and learned how to mill chocolate and temper it and make bars. And then I bought a bunch of and had, you know, Express shipped a bunch of cacao pods from Costa Rica. I did two batches of them and cracked them open and got the seeds out. I know a lot about fermentation from the ancient Egyptian bread project and all of that. So fermenting them and understanding how to do that was not so bad. And I have fermenters and temperature control and humidity controllers and all these things you need. So I very carefully fermented these beans. And this amazing thing happened, which is that when you first take the beans out of the pods, they smell a little bit like lychee and okay. a fruity flavor. There's a pulp in between the seeds. It's really delicious. And it's nothing like chocolate at all. It's all white. And then you ferment it for, you know, three to seven days, depending on what variety you're using. And it goes through different types of fungal and bacterial fermentation at different temperatures. And you can see what's happening via a temperature. I have microscopes in my kitchen. So I look at the, you know, I, I just see the microbes. And it becomes chocolate. It goes from this lychee flavor to smelling like brownies as it ferments. It's absolutely freaking remarkable. And then you dry it and you roast it. And when you roast it, it smells like baking brownies. It's insane. And it cracks like coffee beans. You get two pops. Right. And I prefer going to the first pop. And we could get way into this. And then then you have nibs. And it was remarkable because I had purchased the nibs in a big bag. And then I had made the nibs by fermenting these seeds. Then it was like, whoa, it, it really works. And then the next step was, of course, to take the now mature pods from our plants, crack those open, ferment those beans, and make chocolate out of it, which we eventually did. And then I got to give everybody in the lab chocolate that we had literally made from dirt. It was amazing. And then all these people on the internet started telling me, You're the first person, you know, in North America to ever do this, you know? And I thought, well, that's nice, but I just wanted to, you know, see this process, and I'm so glad that I did because it's amazing. To, you know, to see the development of this this flavor, we all know. And it's basically like ground up burned wood. I mean, that's really what it is. And, and, And now when I taste chocolate bars, I can taste the woodiness and I know where it comes from. It's pretty great.
0: That rocks, and i 'm going to break the rules here and, and go slightly over fifteen minutes because not really
1: not really done with my questions, but sorry about that no not at all do you do so by being I for everyone who put fifteen minutes aside and is now screwed in their day nah, yeah yeah they 've got nothing left, but i I refuse to stop here. My last question was
0: you worked at creative artists yes agency even so c a a what did you do there because it feels like as Richard Love used to say, creative artists,
1: plural, but not possessive.
0: Okay, but, <laughs> but specifically, what was your role there? Because CAA, big agency, so what yeah. were you representing and what were you bringing into the entertainment biz from gaming?
1: So I was recruited by them because um, I left Xbox um, because none of my friends, my game designer friends, were getting their games funded. And I had learned about business and you know international company P&L and all this stuff I needed to learn to launch a game console, and I realized that the problem with games uh, and the stagnation of content at that time, like in the early 2000s, was that uh, games had become expensive and publishers were still funding them like books. And the film industry had, um, you know, around the time of the Gulf and Western Paramount acquisition, which is something you may or may not know about, um, they figured out how to use bank financing, structured financing, Bank loans with guarantees and distribution guarantees to finance films that they would otherwise find too risky to finance. But you have to take those risks to get audiences into the theater, right? And so this is where we get Easy Rider and Rosemary's Baby and Butch Cassidy's Sungan's and All these movies that relaunched the film industry in the 70s were launched because of this new type of financing that enabled studios to take risks on stuff they'd never otherwise be able to do. And I thought, I Now that I know all this stuff and I know about finance and I have some sophistication, haha which I thought at the time, which I didn't, but I would get it later, um, I should do this. And so I started a little company called Capital Entertainment Group. And mm-hmm. basically I was recruited out of there to CIA. And they said, we will show you how to do this. Like we had the agents here, are the guys who invented that in the 70s. And they were right. And so I went to go learn how to do that. And what I did there was finance games uh, quietly behind the scenes. I went and met bankers, I knew all the guys who ran the entertainment divisions of these huge banks. These guys would walk in and say, Mr. Blackley, I have a trillion dollar footing. Why would I put any of it toward your projects? This kind of conversation. And I learned that right. to have those conversations. And so, you know, a lot of games, you go look them up um, from, you know, Guitar Hero to Rock Band to, God, I don't know, there's a lot of games were financed quietly behind the scenes by us and the developers kept their IP. Um, that, rock, that rocks, man. That was a really big deal. It was all very quiet. Nobody knew what the hell I was doing. Similar to today. Nobody knows what the hell I'm doing. But you'll like it. Um, And I learned just a tremendous amount about the plumbing of the real world, which was invaluable. And I got to work in a crazy swank building in Beverly Hills and experience a totally alien lifestyle. That was amazing. Well... Seamus, it's been such a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for
0: joining us today. You've been listening to 50 Minutes in Hell. It usually is a 50-minute podcast. You're three free minutes today. You can find us on wheresyoured.at slash podcast, and you can also go to wheresyoured.at for my newsletter, wheresyoured.at is me. Anyway, terrible exit for a wonderful interview. Thank you so much, Seamus.